and I'm going to be talking to you today about ironing the ocean. Now, um, when I'm saying ironing the ocean, I'm not talking about the sport of extreme ironing that some people have probably seen. The most recent example of it, I think, was the guy who was ironing on the M1 motorway when it was shut. And he set up an ironing board and started ironing right in the middle of the motorway. That's not what I'm going to be talking about, though. Um, I'm going to be talking about um, how important the metal is, iron, for the way that the ocean works. And in particular, for the way that the biology in the ocean works. <clears throat> so this figure that you show here, this rather nice satellite composite image, shows you in the green colours where there is life on the oceans and on the land. Um, if you focus in on the oceans, the blue colours that you see in the middle of each ocean are very poor in life, but the areas in between have a lot of life in them and a very vibrant ecosystem. We really would like to understand what it is that controls both the amount of life and the distribution of life in the ocean. We'd like to understand that because it drives the carbon cycle, it drives carbon uptake from the atmosphere, it's an important component of climate change. We'd like to understand it obviously because it's a part of our food chain and this life is the bottom of the ocean food chain that feeds so many people. We'd also like to understand how it changes into the future and we'd like to be able to understand it just from a purely intellectual point of view. It's a major feature of the planet we live on. We'd like to understand how this thing operates um, quite apart from the societal rewards in doing so. Now, these sorts of images like this tell you that there's a very a distinct pattern of productivity around the ocean. So you have regions of relatively high productivity, for instance, down here in the south and along the equator. And we know that these, at these areas where you have high productivity, in general, are governed by, where, um, by, by the two requirements of life, which is that they need an energy source and they need the building blocks. The energy source is light in the surface ocean. There's normally plenty of light around. And the building blocks are not uh, are carbon, which is in plentiful supply, but also a number of nutrients, and in particular, nitrate and phosphate. So it's just like in your garden. If you want a tree to grow, there's normally plenty of CO2, plenty of carbon for the tree to grow from, but you need to supply nitrate and phosphate. If you want to fertilise your garden, those are the things you'd add. And it's exactly the same in the ocean. Those are the two nutrients that really govern the amount of material that grows in the ocean. So that means it's a little bit of a, a question over data that looks like this. This is, this is the distribution of one of those major nutrients, nitrate, in the surface ocean. And the hot colours on here, the reds and the pinks, show you areas where there is nitrate left at the surface of the ocean. And it's not instantly clear why that should be. If you've got um, light, which you have in these areas, and you've got these, this nitrate, and indeed the, the map of phosphate would look the same, so there's phosphate here as well, you've got the nitrates, you've got the, you've got the nutrients, you've got the energy source, you should have life growing in these areas of the ocean and consuming the rest of those nutrients. This has been a bit of a puzzle. These regions called um, high-nutrient, low-chlorophyll regions have been a problem for some time, and there's been a lot of work gone into trying to understand how nutrients are cycled in the ocean. And here's just one um, example of that sort of work. This is showing you a cross-section in the ocean from up here around, around Iceland all the way down the Atlantic to close to Antarctica. The little black dots on here are measurements of nitrate in the ocean, and it's showing you that we have a very comprehensive understanding of how nitrate is distributed in the ocean and indeed how it circulates and how it's input and output in the oceans. You see, for instance, that there's a clear um, indication of different waters having different values. So this green mass here has come from the north. It's the North Atlantic deep water filling the ocean. And the red ones here have both come from the south with more nutrients in them. So we know a lot about these nitrate, the nitrate and phosphate distribution. But knowing a lot about it still hasn't helped us directly to understand why there are these regions where the nitrate and phosphate is not being used up. 
And it was only in the 1990s that we finally started to work out what was going on. And that's because it's not just nitrate and phosphate that you need in the, in the ocean to get productivity. You also need to have a collection of really low-level metals. For instance, the metal iron, and the iron is probably the one that's most important in this setting. These uh, metals are used as en in the enzymes that enable life to actually build its material. So this is shown schematically here. If you imagine that the circle is a cell, and the cell is growing biomass, so it's making organic material, in order to get in the carbon, the phosphorus, and the nitrate, to get that into the cell requires the use of a number of different enzymes. And those enzymes, all of them rely on metals such as iron, cobalt, cadmium, um, zinc, molybdenum. These metals are effectively um, in the middle of some quite complicated organic structures such as this one. This is B, uh, vitamin B12, which is very um, essential to much of life in ocean. And right in the middle of that is a cobalt um, atom, which is really useful, really essential to what the life is doing. These metals that we have in the ocean that are needed for life, are, in general, they're the, the first row transition metals in the periodic table here. And life uses them because they, are, they, have, a, they have redox chemistry. So they can behave in a reduced and an oxidized form. And they can switch backwards and forwards between those two forms at conditions that are quite like those that we see on the surface of the Earth. And this is useful if you're, if you're life. And what, what you're trying to do is move electrons around to, to grow these are, things that, these are um, elements that you can shuttle backwards and forwards across that redox boundary from reduced to oxidised and back again and use that to pump electrons into your system. So that's why life uses them, but it is a bit of a problem as to why the hell life would develop using these elements which we know are very low level in the seawater. They're extremely low concentration and yet life started in the oceans. Now, the answer to this question requires us to go right back, right back to the beginning of the Earth, of Earth's history, to situations where Earth's atmosphere was dominated by volcanic emissions. And what comes out of volcanoes, such as this rather nice example here from South America, are um, gases, including a lot of CO2. And in the ancient Earth history, in the Precambrian times, the Earth's atmosphere contained nitrogen, as it does now, and carbon dioxide, and really almost no oxygen at all. And that meant that the, the atmosphere of the Earth, a long time ago in Earth's history, was basically reducing. It was a reducing atmosphere. And in those conditions, many of these elements, such as iron, cadmium, cobalt, are relatively soluble and are seen in relatively high concentrations in seawater. What happened as we went through a period about 2.2 billion years ago in Earth history is that life really started to take off. Life started about 3 billion years ago, and this photosynthesis, this very um, simplified reaction to photosynthesis here, by which life takes carbon dioxide and water and turns it into organic material, releases oxygen. And this process, about 2.2 billion years ago, gradually turned the Earth's atmosphere from being a reducing atmosphere to being an oxic and oxidizing atmosphere. You can see that in a number of ways. If you look at the geological record, this figure shows you and the last three and a half billion years of Earth history here with the oxygen levels as we reconstruct plotted on this axis up here. It's pretty difficult to do this properly, but notice that we are looking at a logarithmic scale here. So we're looking at big changes of the oxygen level. And in this period back before 2.2 billion years ago, you get things such as these um, banded iron formations. These are rocks these are in, in Australia. They're, they're very rich in iron, 
And these are um, evidence, clear evidence that the environment then was reducing and that iron could be in its soluble form and could be distributed in the ocean extensively. So life grew up in that environment. It grew up with lots of iron in seawater. It was a sensible move for it to take iron as one of its building blocks and to use this in the enzymes that shuttle electrons around as it forms. As we, as, as we went through 2.2 billion years ago, though, life almost got too successful for its own good. What started happening here is it was pumping out oxygen, turning the atmosphere into an oxygenating environment, and making iron insoluble. So as it did that, as the iron became insoluble, it almost poisoned itself. It almost ran out of the iron that it needed to survive. And it means that life now, since 2.2 billion years ago, is always scrabbling for iron. And that's why when we look at maps like this one of the nitrate concentration, we see that these nitrate and phosphate elements are not used up. There simply isn't enough iron in settings like the Southern Ocean down here to enable life to happen. Now we get a pretty clear indication that this is going on if we look at some natural examples, and I'll pick on one of those, the Galapagos, which is highlighted by this box here. So this is in one of those regions where there is nitrate remaining at the surface, and therefore it's, there's insufficient iron in the ocean to enable life. And if we look at the Galapagos, this figure is showing you the productivity again. So the, the hot colours on here are the amount of life in the ocean. Here in black are the Galapagos Islands. And the currents in the Pacific here are going from your right to your left. And what you see is that the currents go past the Galapagos, which are volcanic islands made with a lot of iron in them. They're gathering some of that iron as they go past, and you get this bloom of life downstream of the Galapagos Islands, driven by the, uh, the availability of iron in that setting. So we can see iron's important naturally. We can also do it um, anthropogenically. We can go out and intentionally stimulate life in the oceans. And this is showing you just that. This is a satellite image. The black colours on here are clouds. You just can't see the ocean. But the coloured bits are a vision of the ocean. Um, and again, the colours represent how much life there is in the ocean. And this is in the Southern Ocean. What you can see is that this swirl here, which is a ship sailing along and dumping iron out the back of it. And as it dumps that iron out the back, you can see this bloom of life stimulated by adding this critical nutrient to seawater. So we now know, since the 1990s, that iron is phenomenally important. We cannot understand the way that the ocean circulates, that food chains work, that the carbon cycle works, without understanding the iron cycle. So you might expect, then, that iron... Our knowledge of iron looks something like that of nitrate. Remember this figure I showed you of how, just how much data there is for how, much, um, how nitrate looks in the ocean. Well, by comparison, this is really bleached out, this image, but this, this was superimposed on top of the, that previous nitrate data, so I just scuttle backwards and forwards. So this data here represents the first ever iron profile that's been measured in the ocean. It's published in 2008. And it's the first ever section of iron which um, tries to do the same sort of thing for iron as we have for nitrate. Starts to really try and understand how iron looks in the ocean and how it's being mixed around in, in seawater. Now, the reason it hadn't been done until then is because it's, it's damn hard, basically. Iron is present at nanomolar concentrations. So a cup of water like this one has only um, about a millionth of a gram of iron in it if it was seawater. So it's extremely low level, very difficult to measure. And you're trying to measure it from a boat that weighs thousands of tonnes and it's made of iron and it's normally rusty because everything rusts at sea. So all your equipment's rusting. You can see iron washing into the sea around you and it's way more iron than you're going to find in your natural seawater sample at um, nanomolar levels. So it's really hard and you have to control it a lot. 
And that means you can just about make out that this is a map of the world. There's Africa, for instance. Um, this means that we have actually a very sparse data set for iron. This shows you all of the iron data in the deep ocean in 2006. And it's improved a little bit in the, in the last few years, but really not very much. So our understanding of how iron looks in the ocean is extremely poor. And yet we know that iron is, is what really governs the pattern that we see on a figure like this. So it's really important to go and understand more about how iron is distributed and how it's cycled. So that's um, what led us to do, undertake the expedition that we um, sailed on at the end of last year. And the region that we went to was this um, region highlighted by the red box on this image I've been using before. Um, we sailed from Cape Town down here, and we were aiming to get across to Montevideo on the other side over here. And you can see perhaps why we went to this area. It's um, an area with a great deal of productivity. There's a lot of um, life in the oceans in this setting. And what we wanted to understand was how does the life get the iron that it needs. And this is a particularly good place to do that because further to the south we know that there's no iron in seawater and the region to the north is also very low in iron. So it's a problem, question mark, how iron gets into this region. It's also a good region because it, it gives us a chance to understand all the possible processes that might be important in the iron cycle. And these are summarised on this um, schematic here. What we need to do is understand how iron might get in from the atmosphere, from dust settling onto the surface, from rivers, and from the volcanoes that are underneath the ocean. This is a great place, this, this 40 degree south setting in the Atlantic, to do that, because you have strong winds that blow off South America and blow, particularly from the Patagonian desert, these big plumes of dust out onto the ocean. So we can understand how much iron is coming with that dust by studying this particular bit of the ocean. It also has a major river system. This is the Rio Plata. It's one of the really large rivers in the world. That's the um, cruise trajectory here. So we go through the plume of stuff coming out of that river and understand what's happening to the iron input um, from riverine sources. It's also a setting, as you go across the ocean here, where this, this relatively couple of kilometres deep is the mid-ocean ridge, a major volcano system. And this gives us the opportunity to look at inputs, and on both sides we have these well-developed shelves where we can look at the sediment supply and how much um, iron is leaking out of the sediments there. It's also a setting where we can look not only at how iron gets into the ocean, but how it is stirred around in the ocean. So we can look at, for instance, how much mixing and circulation goes on. And you see that with this rather nice image here. Here's the Rio Plata again up here, Uruguay-Argentinian um, border up here. And this stripes that you see in here reflect um, different... Um, biology in a very turbulent water system. So we've got strong currents here, we've got an interaction between the physics of all that ocean mixing around with the, um, with, with the, uh, the chemistry and the biology. So it's a good place to look at the interaction between geochemistry and um, circulation. It's also a good place because if I show you again that nitrate figure here, remember this is a section from Iceland to Antarctica, this section at 40 degrees south samples water masses which then go on to bring nutrients to the surface. So this water mass in red here carries nutrients from this setting up the major productivity belt at the equator. And this the tongue of this green water mass that you can see curling up here feeds nutrients, both the macronutrients like nitrate and phosphate and things like iron up into the surface of Antarctica. So this is, this is a, a setting where we can understand not just the local iron cycle, but its implications for a much bigger chunk of the world. 
So with that sort of justification, a group of us wrote a proposal. These are the different institutes that were involved, 11 of us, all UK institutes, although we have some collaborators elsewhere. We submitted this to NERC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and they very kindly funded us to the tune of £3 million. So we had a lot of money to go and look at some of this research. That money was dominated by salaries. Each of these institutes has got at least one postdoctoral worker. There's a number of students. And obviously there's also all the equipment money that we need to do the research. So Julie, um, in, in um, the end of October last year, we found ourselves down in Cape Town. Hopefully you can recognise that it's Cape Town from the backdrop. Um, on this ship here, one of the UK's three research vessels which are ocean going. This is the uh, Royal Research Ship Discovery. It's a 90 metre long research ship. And there were a group of... Um, 24 um, scientists on board. Here are those scientists. So there I am, and uh, that's Alan Schur, who's one of our um, graduate students in the college. Um, I think that's the only other UNIV member on the cruise, actually. There's some other, lots of other Oxford people, but only those two from UNIV. So um, what I'm going to do, so I've told you about the justification a little bit. I've, I've told you about the science behind um, why we went out on the discovery, why we went to the South Atlantic. For the sort of middle section of the talk, I'm going to give you a sense of what we actually did during the cruise. What, we, what was the science like while we were out at sea? So this is a bit more of a travelogue, a bit more of a bunch of holiday snaps, really. Um, <laughs> and this is us sailing away. So this is leaving um, Cape Town, saying farewell, expecting that we were going to be out at sea for five weeks with really quite limited um, um, connectivity to land. We had satellite phones. We didn't have the normal internet and such like that you'd have. We're a long way away from typical connectivity. As, we, as you sail out of port in these ship, the ships, you very often get quite a lot of life going with you. This is the bow of the ship. I'm looking right down onto the bow of the ship, and there's a whole bunch of porpoises and dolphins skimming along with us as we went out of Cape Town. Lots of um, seals and sea lions kicking around, doing all sorts of cute, very sort of anthropomorphic <laughs> things like this. Um, syn synchronised swimming as well seems to be going on. And I've, I've got like hundreds of pictures like this because it's difficult to stop taking them. And that's because there were loads of these things. Everywhere you looked, all around the ship, there were loads of them. And, and yet, if you've got your telephoto out, they're all doing something cute. So you had to keep, you had to keep snapping pictures of, of all of them. So they, they were the dominant megafauna. But we saw, we saw quite a lot of whales and sunfishes and things as well. There's a, I, always, I always seem to get the whale just as it was disappearing, but at least I've got a good uh, fin there. As you go further away from shore, that, um, the, the, the mammal fauna starts to die off, but we still, all the way into the middle of the ocean, saw a lot of albatrosses and a lot of bird life that can stay on the wing for very long times. So here we are again, still quite close to port. You can still see Cape Town in the background there. You can just about make out the seals here. And now we're gonna, I'm going to start to talk about how we undertake the science on the ship. This is actually the view out of my um, cabin. So I was, I was the principal scientific officer. So and that, the officer, uh, the, that officer's cabin is situated so you can look down onto the main um, part of the ship where the research is going on. You can kind of stumble out of your bed in the middle of the night and make sure that everything's going, going according to plan. And the winches that deploy the equipment are right here as well, which you can always keep an eye on, make sure that all the equipment's going down and up appropriately. So we were trying to get a handle on what the iron distribution looked like, and the major tool that we use to do that are basically bottles. You can fill up bottles with water that you can start to measure um, the chemistry of. And this is showing you how these things work. These, um, these are, are called rosettes, and they have a series of bottles around the outside of them, as you see here. Um, at the bottom of the rosette, there's a whole bunch of electronics. 
And this, this, this is quite demanding because this has to go down to five or six kilometres. They're very um, intense pressure casings on here so they can deal with the, the conditions. But these are measuring for us temperature and salinity and how much chlorophyll there is and how turbid the water is. All sorts of other things about the properties of the water as it goes down. And these are deployed on conducting cables. So the information comes back up the cable and sitting on the ship we can see what the water's doing kilometres below us um, um, uh, uh, towards the seafloor. Then wrapped up around all that electronics, we have these bottles, these big grey things here. Well, it's a small screen. I hope you can just about work out that there are um, these little sort of lid, um, lids, basically, at the bottom, and the top is kind of um, obscured here. But you can see that these lids are open, so these grey things are effectively tubes, and they slide down through the water as tubes so they don't crush or anything as they go through. Um, here you see them going into the water. Hopefully, again, you can make out that these are all cocked open and held open by these little bits of wire that go onto an electronic configuration in the middle. So the plan is that you send it down, and at certain depths, you send a message down the wire, it opens one of the, sorry, it opens one of the triggers, and it shuts the top and bottom of the bottle and captures the water for you. It takes about five hours for this thing to go down, roughly an hour a kilometre, so in deep water, it's about five hours to go down and back up again. Um, so you've got five hours to do stuff, five hours to go to the lab, five hours to play frisbee golf on the Wii, five hours to have your dinner, um, and also five hours to look and worry about what's happening below you. So a lot of the action goes on in this sort of part of the ship where all the stuff is come, all the information is coming on board as the package goes down through the water. So you probably can't really make it out here, but there's a, there's a, a stress gauge here telling you the weight of the package. I think it says 2.3 tonnes on here, so it's telling you whether it's got snagged or anything, whether you've lost it on the bottom of the wire. So you keep an eye on that quite closely, especially in rough seas, because it bounces up and down, and the tension on the cable um, increases and decreases a lot as it bounces. You can see a, a, a small seismic device here, which is telling you what the base of the ocean looks like and telling you the depth. And then on these screens here, this is the same screens blown up, we have that information about what's underneath us in the ship. So we have, for instance, um, temperature and salinity. You can see the structure here going down to five and a half kilometres below the ship. We also have things like the oxygen levels, and how turbid the water is here. So we kind of look, watch this like a hawk, we work out where we want to shut the bottles, so on the way back up again we can shut them at different depths all the way up through the water column and get 24 samples of um, water from beneath the ship. And there's this nerve-wracking moment. You can see on the, uh, as it comes back up again that it's getting close to the surface and you go and stand at the edge of the ship and you wait and see what happens and you see it creeping back out of the water at you. And what you're looking for first of all is have they shut? You've tried to shut them, you've waited five hours while you hope they shut, and when they come back to the surface, if they haven't shut, you've just wasted five hours. So here's a nice successful deployment. This one came back, they've all closed, you can see all the tops are shut. We've got 24 nice samples to play with. So then you've got the water on board, and it's bottle filling time. We filled about 4,000, no, 14,000 bottles during the cruise. So we, um, we, we filled a lot of different sample bottles for lots of different measurements. These have all been acid cleaned, they're all double bagged, so they're all extremely careful to keep them isolated from any possible contamination. And what happens is as the package comes back onto the ship, is you start to get this cluster of people around it, desperate for their samples and arguing about who's going to go first. And I think you can see one person's going first and will work around the rosette, and these people are queuing up, ready to go around them and get their water samples. This is um, just showing you some more pictures of that sampling. People will be sampling particular bottles. So you see Tom here has got written on his gloves what which bottle numbers he wants to get water from. And it has to work like clockwork, really, so everyone gets their samples sequentially around the rosette. And this is the sort of, yeah, lots of detail on here, but just to give you a, a sense 
of the fact that the different water depths here, which are plotted on here and filled in as the thing was, as the bottles were triggered, are being scrapped over by people measuring helium, hydrogen, oxygen, oxygen again, nutrients, carbon, all sorts of different things are being measured in different bottles as shown by the ticks here. And then you see all the analysts below. So there's a lot of coordination, a lot of effort involved to get this um, to work and to bring all the waters back on board. When we're looking at the iron samples, these are so low level that we have to take the bottles off before we open them and put them into a clean environment. So we take them into the ship and put them in a special clean lab where we can take, where we can keep those, those bottles clean and really make sure they don't get contaminated. And here I am. This is not a clean lab. I wasn't doing iron work, but this is me and with, a, with a laminar flow hood trying to acidify some samples after they've come on the ship. So the water distribution is an important part of the story. We also need to know about how much dust is arriving. So this is Rosie, one of the people on the board, collecting dust filters. These are right at the front of the ship. And there's a clever, these, these devices up here are designed so that the filters open and shut so that they only open when the wind is coming towards the front of the ship. So there's, these electronic devices open and shut these things. And um, that means if you get any dust blowing across the ship, which might be sweeping iron from the ship into your filters, it's stopped from doing that by this clever bit of electronics. And here she is with one of her filters again, bagging it straight away, keeping it clean, getting it into the clean lab. So that gives you the, the distribution from all those bottles. That air sampling gives you something about the atmosphere, but we also want to know about some of those other fluxes. And the other one I'm going to pick on to, to tell you about um, is the sediment flux here. So we need to do something to constrain how much iron is leaking out of the sediment, because the, the, the sediment itself has got a lot of iron in it, and as that um, sediment gradually alters, then the iron will leak out, leak out into, the, into the ocean. So to do this, we have to capture some of that sediment. So the other major activity, apart from those rosettes, was to lower devices like this ugly beast to the bottom of the ocean. And this is a coring device. It basically collects a big box of mud, and this is the box that you see down here. It strikes the surface, and there's a trigger mechanism up here, which means this great big wedge slides underneath and stops the mud from falling back out again. Then you suck it out of the, the sediment, and you pull it through kilometres of water back onto the ship and um, hopefully get some mud. There's, the wire's not conducting this time, so we don't know what's happening. We just put it in, and then we stand and do that, and just, yeah, hope it's going to be all right. And this is Will, who was heading the sediment team, and Alan, who's um, a Univ graduate, um, waiting for the package to come back up deep in the night one night. This is one of the challenges with this sort of um, sampling is that, that this is very dirty. This is like making mud pies. There's mud everywhere. And um, you have to try and separate this extremely carefully from the waters, which are very clean. And that's quite challenging. So here you have this moment of tension again. You can see the package is there. It hasn't fallen off, which is good. And here it comes back onto the ship. But you don't know if it's fired. Has it fired? Has it closed? Have you got any mud? And then it finally comes back up. You still can't really tell because there's definitely mud there, but it might be washing out. But then when it comes up, you finally see that it's got a closed bottom and you've got yourself a box full of mud, and you can start to do something with it. Here we are sampling it, so there's the box, pushing tubes in so we can start to make some measurements on those tubes. Um, and the sorts of measurements, that, this is it's actually quite cool, you've, what, you're, what you've captured is a square metre of the seafloor, you can see little bugs and things living on top of it, you can see this environment that we're completely isolated from normally, and you've captured it and brought it back and put it on the ship. Um, this is what that mud looks like, lifted off the front plate, and you can see that there is evidence of burrows and things. It's very sloppy on top. And we basically suck these tubes out and take them to the lab to make some measurements. This is us sampling some of that mud. And then one of the things that we do with the mud is to, is to centrifuge it and to separate out the waters. So this is um, centrifuging on a boat is quite difficult because they're spinning extremely fast, and the boat's doing this the whole time. So centrifuges don't like it. They tend to crap out on you. 
quite frequently. But the centrifuge separates the mud from the water that was inside that mud, so it gives you with the pore water, the stuff in the spaces. And then sometimes we do a lot of that. Come on, Alice, sorry, gone too far. Let's go on here. This must be a big slide. Yeah, here's a big slide. Um, so the sort of thing we can do in those pore waters, this is the depth in the sediment here. And this is measurements made on the ship. We're looking at how much oxygen is in those different um, port, different cores. So the different cores at different depths down the slope into the deep ocean. And that oxygen level is telling us something about the chemistry that's going on in the sediment. And when we get samples such as these back to the lab and measure their iron concentration, or in this example, their silicon isotope composition, those, those gradients that we see of oxygen or iron or silicon will tell us about the diffusional flux out of those sediments into the ocean. So we can work out the diffusion of iron into the ocean, feeding um, productivity from below. So those are the sorts of activities that we were up to. Um, it didn't always go completely smoothly. Um, this is the beginning of a Force 8 storm. It was dark by the time um, the, the, the really big waves hit. This was about, these were about um, six metre waves that you're looking at now, and it peaked at about nine metre waves overnight. Um, this is just a view of one of the upper cabins. It's quite difficult to get a sense of what the wave height's really like from up high on the ship, but there are wave height recorders inside that tell you what's going on. This was pretty, um, pretty rough, and Alan, who was, um, doesn't have the best sea legs, was not feeling happy during, <laughs> during this moment. In fact, here is Alan on a happier day, doing, doing the sort of things that we entertain ourselves with when, we're, um, when we've got an idle moment. Expanded polystyrene cups can be unexpanded quite successfully if you take them down five, five kilometres into the ocean. The pressure down there is really intense, and it's quite good fun to draw on them and then send them down to the bottom. It's obviously not very scientific, but when this package goes down to the bottom, what comes back up again are much, much smaller. <laughs> so the, wor the worst thing for me about going on the cruise was that my two boys, Jonah and Isaac, were a long, long way away, and I was um, you know, fulfilling my nostalgia by making them cups to take home. And here you see that the, the original and the, uh, and the final product, five kilometres um, later. Um, we also try and have some fun. I don't, yeah, this is, these are Wii characters, so um, everyone developed their own Wii characters and were playing sport with each, um, on, the, on the Wii in their idle moments. I think that one's supposed to be me, although I didn't actually didn't make my own figure. Um, and I think I'm going to skip over some of this stuff. Well, just, I'll just mention briefly on what these are. So the other thing we try to do is to take some samples of the particulate material in the water, and most of the life is particulate. So if you want to learn more about the nature of life in the ocean and how that life is interacting with the chemistry, then you need to suck enough water through a filter that you get a lot of the, filter, the particulate material on that filter. So these are, these are special pumps that, do, that we attach to the wire. We lower them down. They, they, again, they've got very phenomenal pressure casings. You can see the the screw-in cap on here, so they can go a long way down, they can, and when they're down, they turn on and pump water through these big pan filters here, um, so that you get a lot of, of um, particulate material on top. Here you see one of these going in while people are arguing over their waters behind. So how do, how do we get on? This was, um, I've shown you what life at sea is like, the water sampling, the sediment sampling, and a little bit about the, uh, the, the other things that we get up to. This is what um, we did on the, the, the start of the leg. We sailed out of Cape Town. We trugged across down to 40 degrees south as planned and along it. And unfortunately, at this point, one of the members of the crew and the, the, the science party fell very, uh, fell very sick. She had um, a viral meningitis, which is quite an unpleasant thing to, to get. And we had to turn back. 
And we were at an irritating point in the cruise because if we were a little bit further along, we would have gone on to Montevideo. It would have been closer. At this point, we had to turn back. And these ticks show you days. So you can see that from the turning back point, it was about five or six days of hard steaming as, as in a direct line back towards Cape Town to get this um, scientist to hospital. She spent a, about a week in hospital, but then she was perfectly right, fully recovered. Definitely was the right thing to do to get her back to hospital, but um, sadly it meant we couldn't finish the cruise. We did have a bit of time left, so we also went out again and repeated that line, went out and, um, and back again to get some more data, but we weren't able to go all the way across. So this is the, the, what the whole trajectory looks like. We've just heard in, literally in the last week that NERC are going to fund us to go back and finish it off. So they're going to give us another £700,000 to go and um, finish the job that we started um, and, to, and to finish this cruise off and go into Montevideo. So um, what I'm just going to um, do to close really in the last five or perhaps ten minutes is to talk about a little bit about what we found here and about um, why it might be important. And to some extent, this is a bit of a letdown because we really haven't finished yet. A lot of what we have to do is we bring all those bottles back, the 14,000 bottles, and then we have to start measuring them. There's a lot of analysis to do um, once we get back in the lab. But some things that we definitely know are the measurements that we made on the ship, those things that you saw on the screen as we lower the package down and back again. So this is a salinity, the oxygen levels, and the, and the nitrate, that major nutrient. And this is depth from the top down to five kilometres at the bottom here. And this is Cape Town on this side going out to the middle of the ocean. So we can see these really clear stripes in these figures representing different water masses. Um, two, these two that have come from the south, you can make out perhaps the orange one here that's come from the north. So we've clearly captured all those different water masses that we wanted to find. You can see that clearly represented in this sort of figure. Those bottles, though, right now are sitting back in the lab, such as the fact, the fact that they will eventually go to labs like this, um, in the Department of Earth Sciences up the road on South Parks Road. Those people who have been up to the science area recently will have seen the Department of Earth Science. It's a brand new building. It's got that sort of zigzag pattern on it on the, on the main wall. And this is one of the machines. That's actually Rhodes House in the background through the windows here. This is one of the mass spectrometers that will measure the samples that we recovered during the cruise. This is another smaller one. This will do a lot of the, the work that we do in Oxford on this particular cruise. And this is, these are our clean labs. This is where the samples are at the moment. Um, we take the samples, these are some of the, the, the samples we got from the crew sitting in the lab uh, today. I took this photo earlier today. Um, and they're going to be worked on in this very in, clean environment where we're pushing in clean, filtered air the whole time to keep the samples completely clean from contamination. And there is no metal in this lab. It's a metal-free lab, so everything is built out of plastic. And that means that there's no chance of getting any iron contamination from the environment in the lab into our samples, any iron or, or, or any, any other sorts of elements. So um, th this is where the samples are at now. So to some extent, I can't give you the punchline. I can't tell you where the iron's coming from. Is it dust or is it sediment or is it mid-ocean ridge activity? Um, but I will be able to eventually because we've got the samples and we're busy analysing them in environments like this. But also wanted to, to, to say a few words about some of those other measurements. When I showed you that table, there were lots of columns. It didn't just say iron and that was it. It said iron and then a whole bunch of, of other things. Just to give you a little flavour about the sorts of, of other measurements that we're making during this cruise, I'm going to pick on two which both involve UNIV people in that activity. And one of those is the measurement of radium, and particularly this isotope of radium, 228 radium. And this is being done by Alan, the Swire PhD um, here at UNIV. And what he's, <coughs> he's doing is making use of the fact that thorium, this um, isotope here, is naturally occurring, it's very long-lived, so it's been around since the birth of the solar system. 
And when this thorium isotope decays, it makes this radium isotope, which is also radioactive, and it has a half-life of about six years. Six years is quite a useful timescale in the oceans. That's a good sort of timescale for mixing and, and transport. And he's, he's really pioneered the development of a new technique to measure this isotope, so we can now measure it at concentrations we couldn't measure it in before, and we can start to measure it along the section that we sailed on here. So just to show you two of his profiles from station 3 and 11 out here in red and blue. And what, you, what you can use the radium for, if you look at the top to start with, the red and the blue here, you see the red is higher in the station that's near to shore, and it, it, the radium is lower by the time you get further off. This is showing you that the radium is coming from the edge where there's all the sediment and all the land. That's where the thorium is. So the thorium's making the radium on the edge. It's mixing out, and as it goes out, it's decaying because it's got this six-year half-life. So as it mixes outwards, it's decaying away, and that's why you see this systematic decrease from the red to the blue, and you'd see that you see that in his other data as well. So this radium isotope tells us about how quickly metals are mixing away from the, their sources. So by coupling this to our iron measurements, we, get a lot, we can turn just the distribution of iron into a flux. We can actually say how much iron is coming out and how quickly is it mixing away from the edges. So that's just one example of the sorts of things that we can use some of these natural radioactive isotopes to look at. In the deep ocean, we can also use the fact that some of it's leaking out of the, the sediment at the bottom. So you see in both cases near the bottom, the radium is a bit higher. And we can look at how quickly that radium is mixed upwards in the water column to see how quickly radium is, uh, iron as well is being transported up into the um, photic zone where all the life happens. Another student in, 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 in Oxford and at UNIV um, is Tristan Horner. Tristan wasn't on the, crew, on the cruise. He's more of a lab-based person. But what he's looking at are isotopes of cadmium. So cadmium is one of those micronutrients, a little bit like iron, which is needed by life. And it has multiple isotopes, which are fractionated from each other. They're separated from each other by very small amounts by natural processes. So using those big, shiny mass spectrometers that you saw a minute ago, we're now able to make measurements of this cadmium isotope ratio and see how this varies. And we're looking here at, um, this is a 0.4% change that, that, that we're looking at. So it's quite a small percentage change in this ratio. Um, but nevertheless, we see very systematic changes as cadmium is being used up in the surface by life, that it's making the isotopes go relatively heavy. So it's something quite systematic about the isotope fractionation. And this is a tool to understand how biology is using the cadmium. It's, it's also true for iron or zinc or the other metals. We can use this, this small isotope fractionation to learn which process it is that's actually gobbling up the trace these trace metals. So again, um, Trist Tristan wasn't on the cruise, but he's funded jointly by NERC and by CASE, an industry partner, who are actually one of the manufacturers of those mass spectrometers that you saw on an earlier figure. So um, iron, is, iron is what it's all about. That's kind of the, the flagship thing. But a lot of other things are being measured on these cruises to try and put that into context and really quantify some of the fluxes. So why does it, why does it matter? Does this come back to the justification for this, for this study, really? And that's that we want to be able to understand the pattern that you see on a figure like this. And we want to be able to understand it well enough that we know what will happen as, as the Earth changes as we go into the future. And let's just think about what some of those changes might be. This is the Piper Alpha oil platform, which some people may have heard about. Sorry, it's not the Piper Alpha, it's the Brent Spa oil platform, not Piper Alpha at all. The Brent Spa oil platform, which some people may have heard of, 
And this is an oil platform that Shell decided would be a good idea to drag out to the middle of the Atlantic and dump into the deep sea. They thought that would be the best way of getting rid of it rather than cutting it up on land. Now, quite understandably, Greenpeace didn't really like that. They thought this was silly. And they said it was silly because this is chock full of iron, it's chock full of cadmium and zinc and nickel and all those nutrients that, are, that we have in the ocean. And if those nutrients get too high, they do indeed become toxic. So this was a big debate between Shell saying it's fine, they're nutrients, it'll be all right, and Greenpeace saying, no, it won't, you can't put rubbish in the ocean. And this sort of um, debate was informed by really not very much information. We didn't know what was going on with the iron cycle or the zinc cycle very well, um, but if we're going to start doing anything like this, if we're going to start disposing of things in the deep ocean, or if we're doing it accidentally already, then we really need to know more about how these things are cycled naturally in the ocean so we can predict the impact of these changes. Another reason that we need to understand iron is that we might choose to manipulate the iron cycle intentionally. And this um, illustrates this idea. It's one of these ideas behind geoengineering, the idea that we can manipulate the climate of our planet quite intentionally by messing with the natural system. This figure is showing you, again, the same sort of data I've shown you before. It's the amount of life in the ocean, with the hot colours being lots of life. And we're looking at the North Pacific here. So again, the, the black colours are clouds. And you can see round the edge of the North Pacific, there's quite a lot of life in general. And that's because around the edge, you're touching rock, touching the, the, the material that can provide iron. And naturally, there's quite a lot of iron around the edge of the ocean. In the middle, there's less iron and there's less productivity, except for here. A little splash of colour there. And that's being driven by another one of these situations where people are dumping iron out of a boat intentionally to stimulate um, productivity. And in this case, specifically to stimulate carbon uptake. And they were looking about how much carbon went into that patch of life, how much was therefore removed from the atmosphere and taken out of the system. And therefore something about um, what this might do to the, carbon, to, the, to the climate system. So if we want to um, even start to think about ideas such as this, of, of adding iron to the ocean as some sort of fertiliser, we've really got to be um, fully um, aware of what the cycle looks like naturally. We don't want to start messing with the system until we understand it much better than we do today. Even if we don't do it purposefully, though, we're already messing with the systems in other ways. The belts of aridity on the Earth are expanding. That means the dust supply is changing through time. The oceans are becoming slightly more anoxic with time, and that means that the sediment cycling of iron is going to change. All of these things will change in the coming decades. What we need to do with the sorts of cruises that I've been telling you about today are to understand well enough the processes of the nutrient cycles that we can predict what will happen as those changes um, are manifest in the coming decades. And I'll leave you there with a final sunset image from the Royal Research Ship Discovery. So thanks very much. <laughs>